Well, I wasn't planning to say what I'm about to say, but so be it. The music that Mitch and the worship team prepare here for you is considered and researched thoroughly. The first song that we sang, there was a line in it, Hosanna in the highest. We don't use the word Hosanna, really. Very few of us actually know what it means. It's Hebrew, and even in the New Testament, it is transliterated in the Hebrew. Hosanna means save us. Save us. In the triumphal entry, when Jesus was entering on Palm Sunday, he was entering Jerusalem, the crowd was yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, which is essentially quoting Psalm 118. And I just really appreciate, even now that I'm a part of it, um, how much effort goes into the worship in song that we, that we do here in preparation of our hearts for the message that the Lord has put on typically John's heart. And uh, this Sunday, you know, around the world, this Sunday is the first really significant Sunday of the calendar year. Any takers? What's going to happen up in North Georgia later today? Right? It's Master Sunday. And sadly, the majority of the world doesn't stop and pause for what Jesus did and what was happening 2,000 years ago. Right? What you have is, is this cultural obsession, and I have to confess I'm, I'm one of them. I put this up. I need this. We have a cultural obsession with things like the masters. And we, and we look at them, and vicariously, we... Um, hey, me personally, most of you know, I love golf, and... I wish I was there in one sense. And John was very gracious because I had an opportunity to, to be, I'm in the queue, whatever that means, um, to be one of the marshals there. And I'm very much looking forward to the possibility of that happening. And John and I were wondering, because they, they don't tell you, and so we waited until Saturday of last week, and then I found out. As, as is already pointed out, Passover, it's, it's, it's Palm Sunday for us, but for the Jewish people, it's the beginning of Passover. And Passover won't be covered, as John was alluding to, it's not next up, because as Chip and he pointed out last week, we here at Grace, we preach through the gospel. And he finished up, and that's where I'm going to be picking up in chapter 7, and that's going to be our text this morning, in spite of the fact that it is Palm Sunday. But while we'll be spending the majority of our time there, I want to spend a couple of minutes more on Palm Sunday. If you Google Israel national holidays... You're going to land on a page that hopefully they'll throw up here. And it, as 21st century Americans, we know very little about 
the ancient traditions of a culture nearly halfway around the world. And like the U.S., the nation of Israel have their own national holidays. And if you land on this site, if you go to this site, you will find out here they all are. And I can tell you, being raised on Long Island, that one of the really spectacular things about the Jewish calendar was is that because the town that I lived in was about 75% Jewish, and we got all of their holidays too. Which, Charlie may remember that, but you know, what, what was really spectacular about it is, is that, you see, the, the Jewish calendar starts in September. We, it's our September, but that's the beginning of their year. And the first holiday on the Jewish calendar is Rosh Hashanah. And then um, it's, what is it? It's five days later, it's Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, a massively important holiday on the Jewish calendar. And then eight days after that is the Sukkot. And the Sukkot is the Festival of the Tabernacles, which is where we have been parked in Chapter 7 now for several weeks. And that is the first of three annual pilgrimage festivals on the Israeli calendar. This is massively important, and it, it, it doesn't really resonate with us as Americans. But I mean, the closest thing we have to it, I would suggest, would be probably Thanksgiving. It's where you load up everybody and you go to so-and-so's house. Well, in the case of the people in Israel, what loading up everybody and doing was hey, wrap it all up, we're going to Jerusalem. That's what they would do. Didn't matter where they were, that was a pilgrimage. And the first one of the year is the Feast of the Booths. Now, think about this. Whenever you get the whole family together, what are the two topics everyone is asked to avoid. Boom. Politics and religion. Why? Because we may love our family, but we don't all agree on those two topics, do we? Now, think about this. Think about Jerusalem in the picture we have here in chapter 7. What we have is hundreds and probably thousands of families. And the topic is this guy named Jesus. And the chief priests at that time were, it's not like here in America where we make this, we have this delusion of separation of church and state and we go bend ourselves over backwards for that, right? Not so in Israel. You have to put your mindset there. This, the, the, the chief priests were the political and religious leaders for the people. And they were having to deal with the, the, the obstruction of Rome being in charge at, at that time. So you've got this political tension, you've got the chief priests who are in charge of all of this stuff, in, in there, and you've got this really heightened tension. And that's our context this morning. 
there are bound, just like in our family on Thanksgiving, if those topics come up, there's bound to be some disagreements, probably pretty lively, I would imagine, in some of your families, and that's what we have here. So let me pray, and we'll jump back into our text. Father, thank you so much for your word and your son. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we look at this wrapping up text of chapter 7, that you would speak through me and uh, have a word for the people who are here. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start a few verses back from where John left off last week so we can get a nice running start. Okay? Here we go. So a division occurred among the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the temple police came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why haven't you brought him? The police answered, no man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd which doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who had came to him previously, being one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee, are you? They replied, Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So each of them went to his house. So, like any blended family around the Thanksgiving table or July 4th, the may around the grill, you have one group seeing Jesus, what Jesus is doing and saying one way, and you have another group seeing it entirely different. So that verse 43 makes it very clear to us that there was a division rising up and their authority, the authority of the chief priest was being threatened. Look with me at verses 47 and 48. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed? The exchange reminds me of the times when people have already made up their minds and haven't got any interest whatsoever in understanding and hearing what really happened. First, they throw out the accusation. Then, candidly, they ask a pretty absurd question. Does anyone really ever know what somebody believes or what they're thinking? So they're so frustrated, and that is really clear to me when we read verses 40, verse 49. Verse 49 says, but this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Now the crowd is both ignorant and cursed. The word accursed here is an interesting word, and it's an interesting choice to me. It only appears three times in the entire New Testament. Here, and twice in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul is actually quoting Deuteronomy 27. Now, everyone who does not, who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is accursed. Now, both the Hebrew and the Greek definitions for accursed begin with, you know how when you go into the dictionary, there's, there's, there's the definition and it's another word that you have to know in order to understand the word that you're looking up. And in this particular case, both the Greek and the Hebrew definition 
start with two archaic verbs that weren't even in a lot of use hundreds of years ago. So how is that going to help? And you have to keep going down, and, you, and then you find out what it essentially means is doomed. Okay? So what these chief priests are doing is essentially saying, these people are ignorant, they, they don't know the law, and they're doomed. So, having John having conveyed to us that the, the chief priests are characterizing anyone who disagrees with them as ignorant and doomed, he then returns to someone we were introduced to in chapter 3, Nicodemus. In chapter 3, we learn that he was a Pharisee and a ruler. And here John tells us exactly what kind of ruler, and I can tell you he's one that was willing to push back on his colleagues. Verse 50 and 51 Nicodemus, who had gone to him, and that is Jesus, before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus wasn't just a ruler. He wasn't just a Pharisee. He was one of the chief priests. And he wasn't willing to go along with his colleagues at this point and basically just characterize anyone who disagreed with them as ignorant and doomed. Now, we can't know from what we see here or in chapter 3 if Nicodemus believed Jesus' claims at this point. We really can't. But John saw something different in Nicodemus. He's the only New Testament writer to bring him up, right? And gospel writer. Something about him as a leader, political and spiritual leader, mind you, drew John's attention in. And I think we can just characterize the way that Nicodemus pushed back is, wait a minute, Right? I mean, the chief priests are essentially in a grand condescension, which is a lot, frankly, a lot of leaders do this. If they feel threatened, what do they do? They try to intimidate you and get you to shut up and back down. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it goes on today. Some of you may have a boss that's like that. It's just something that's gone on from the history of mankind. But here, Nicodemus, who this, these are his colleagues, he's a chief priest, he's saying, wait a minute. Is that the way we're going, to, we're going to address this Jesus? Now, to better understand this exchange between Nicodemus and his fellow chief priests, we will spend the majority of our remaining time considering what John wrote back in verse 43. Okay? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Him. As I can personally attest, and many of you can as well, if you surrender your life to Christ, many of the people that you know, and possibly some that you love, will think that you have lost your mind. Probably worse. The chief priests, who again are the political and religious leaders of that time, spiritual leaders for Israel, 
weren't interested in what Jesus was doing and saying apart from this. He was threatening their power and influence. Jesus was forcing them to look at themselves and see how far that they had drifted from what God the Father had previously said, prophesied, and wanted from his people. These were supposed to be the leaders. These were supposed to be the people that were going to keep them on the correct path for honoring the Father. And their reaction, not too unlike anyone's reaction who was in a political position or, frankly, some that are in religious positions, to hit back if they're questioned and hit back hard. I know, when I was younger, that was the model, right? You know, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. I'm not Charlie Umphrick. I mean, I don't, I don't just enter a room and intimidate people because of how big I am. I have to, when you challenge me, I'm going to push back. I'm going to let you have it. And thankfully, that's happened less and less frequently as I've gotten older. But I can tell you, the guy is still in there. In my flesh, I'm still in there. Ignorant and doomed is the way they characterized anybody. And as we saw last week, and John, so, I mean, I love the way he pointed it out. When you believe what Jesus said, in that moment of surrender, everything changes. And it will change forever. Once you surrender your life to Christ, you will see, I think the way John put it was, you will see your life differently. You will see your wife differently. You will see your kids differently. You will see your job differently. You will see your hobbies differently. You will see your friends differently. You will see everything differently. Now, maybe immediately, not enormously. It's just like, oh, everybody. But no, it will be different. Not perfectly. I'm glad that John added that because it's, it's really key. I'm going to save it several more times. It's not perfectly, but it's noticeable. It's noticeable. You are going to noticeably different, be different if you believe what Jesus said and did what he asked you. Well, frankly, he doesn't ask. He commands it. He demands it. We have, com we have sort of softened the edges. We were talking about softening the edges, my New York edges being softened over time. What has happened over 2,000 years is we've dulled the edges. We, we, it's just not culturally agreeable to, 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 to actually take what Jesus said verbatim and do it. Why? I'll tell you why. Because it's not going to make you really popular. They killed him. But, ah, oh, you know, we got to be understanding. Eh, maybe not. So Nicodemus wasn't sure. At least not yet. Most of the crowd, and even Jesus' own disciples at this point, weren't sure what to make of Jesus and his claims. I think John, uh, Jordan Peterson put it brilliantly, frankly. You know, the things that Jesus claimed should be terrifying to anyone with a lick of sense. His claims and demands are radical. They were radical. They are radical. 
Here's the net of it. Jesus divides. And the Christianity that I can read in Scripture is not an add-on. It is a replacement. It is not something you add to your life. It is something that becomes your life. Becomes, great verb, action. It happens over time. Not perfectly, but noticeably. Sometimes, even families can be our most difficult obstacle. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus said this. Verse 43 said, there was a division arose because of him. Well, here you have it. Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 13. Jesus is detailing the difficulties his disciples would face on account of their belief in him when? Once he was gone. In verse 11, he gives this amazing encouragement. He said, do not be anxious beforehand for what you will say, and it's for what you will say when you're being persecuted, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Did you grab that? If, here's the premise, if you are one of his, A, expect persecution. B, when it comes, don't sweat it. Just say what comes to you in that moment because it's coming from the Holy Spirit within you. That is just amazing to, an, to me as a believer. I mean, I remember the first time I read that. I remember going, hmm, okay. Okay? Seemed kind of out there. Let me tell you, it may be amazing to a believer, but let me tell you what it is to an unbeliever. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Jesus doesn't just leave it there. Verses 12 and 13 emphasize the point. It brings to clarity to my point that there was a division among them. Jesus divides. In verse 12, it begins, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. These are not my words. But it's pretty clear and unambiguous language, is it not? We should A, expect persecution. If we align ourselves with this Jesus of Nazareth, we should expect persecution that everything isn't going to be sunshine and rainbows. Now, my father didn't try to have me put to death. But it wasn't pretty. Because I remember, I was 27 years old. I had just surrendered my life to Christ. This is 1980. Yes, I'm old. And I, 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 I was so excited. I mean... He got saved. Hosanna. I got saved. And I, was, I wanted to tell everybody, you've met those. I'm, I'm one of them, right? I want to tell everybody, right? And I told my father. And I, you know, didn't go great. 
went something like this. Surrender your life to Christ. That's ridiculous. With everything we know that maybe 2,000 years ago was a bunch of superstitious nonsense, but that's fine. We know it to be nonsense. Now we know that. Why in the world would you waste your life on something so ridiculous? That was the open arms that I had from my dad to me surrendering to Christ. Maybe that's something similar to what you might expect, even for just telling your family that you're going to church. Why don't you come with me? Just like John suggested, right? Come on! This is, look at what God's doing at Grace. I have to tell you, I'm part of it. It's awesome what God is doing here. Seeing you here. It, this, is, this is spring break week. I expected like nothing. You know, but you know, you, look. God's doing something here. When God is doing something, if you have surrendered your life, you want to be part of it. If you don't want to be part of it, good cause for pause. You know, are you just going through some cold ritualistic thing? Have you just, you know, my parents go, so I go. I mean, why are you here? Why? Jesus didn't add, so, you know, offer anyone just some tack me on to whatever it is that you want to do in your life. You know, give me a call anytime you really want me to be there to, to help fix up some situation you're in. You know, Jesus never, ever offered that. Read the Gospels. Tell me if you find it. I would love to see it. It never happened. What, what has happened is Christianity overall, writ large, has caved in to cultural pressures to accept fill-in-the-blank. Jesus confronted all of it in a way way better than any of us or all of it do it, uh, certainly better than me, you know, because he was gracious, but he wasn't bending. He didn't bend what God asked to suit cultural pressure. Never. He never yielded. If you find it in your Bible, come bring it to me. I want to see it. Because I don't find it. I just don't see it. If anything, it's the exact opposite. We live in a fallen world. There's a premise that the world doesn't buy. Okay, this whole notion of original sin, please, are you kidding me? That's the reaction that you will typically get. But we have to make it very, very, very clear that the God of Jesus' Father laid it out and said, perfection is what I want. And because y'all can't do it, I'm going to step in and I'm going to bring my son on the scene who will show you what that's like. And you know, you ever play that game when you're, when you're driving in a car and it's the game that, you know, pick a car, pick a type of car, and you never see that car. But the second that you, you bring attention to, you know, a Volkswagen bug, then you see what? Tens of them, right? They're just everywhere. 
right? Now, apply that premise to Jesus in Scripture in the Gospel. And when I say this to you, when you're reading the Gospel, you will see it everywhere. Jesus had one mission when he came, and that was the cross. And what did he do between the age of, well, from birth until Calvary? What did he do? What did he say he was about? He was doing the will of my Father. You want to know what God's will is for your life? There it is. How you doing? I ain't doing that great. But I recognize the fact that I'm not doing that great, and I'm, and I'm really, really working to be less Roy and more like him. Are you? I hope you are. I'm not trying to upset you. I'm trying to get you to see that the Jesus in the Gospels isn't necessarily the Jesus being peddled in an awful lot of pulpits. We're talking about Holy Week here. And Holy Week should be a solemn week for believers. It should be a week where we are focused on, for those of us that have been doing the, the Lent devotional for the last six weeks, we've been really focusing on a subject that most of the time doesn't get enough attention, and that is our sin. My sin. Not your sin. That's between you and God. My sin. I fall short. Way short. And I'm working on it. But I had a long way to come because <laughs> it's been a rough go for a lot of years. Okay? It's not all doom and gloom. Yes, there are tragedies and shattered dreams. We've had one in our own church body here recently. I mean, it isn't all grand, but it isn't all terrible either. There's another amazing thing and I want, to, I want to draw your attention to. A book that I read a couple of years ago is still impacting me today. It was a book about brain science, and it was written by a couple of a academics, which normally is a kind of a droll read, but I have to say that this particular book was conveying what science has learned about the human brain over the last 25 years, ever since they were able to start looking at living brains, not just cadavers right? And they have learned some amazing stuff. And the thing that separates humanity from every other living creature on the planet, as far as science knows, and we know that they don't know everything, but they're looking, all right, is this. Joy. Humans are capable of joy. And not only that, that joy is a choice. The amazing thing about the human condition is that you don't necessarily have to be saved and agree with God regarding Jesus. We have all met people who are caring for people who are in need that by any, by any recognition don't have any faith in Jesus whatsoever. So it's not just you have to be saved in order to care. No. 
You have to have eyes like Jesus where you're literally looking. And you have to have a spirit. If you want to engage the majority of people, you're not going to do such a great job if all you are is being cranky at them. You know, if you're being cranky with people, you know, it's the, what's the cliche? You know, no one cares what you know until they know that you care, right? And how do you convey that? Do you convey that with a spirit of joy? Or do you, are, you, are you attempting to be caring by just being like the soup Nazi or something? You know, that's just that, you know, there's an incongruity there, but it's possible, correct? Right? We've all met them. We've seen people who are really, really kind to other people. They don't, they're not, you know, by any reckoning, they're not a really a believer. But Jesus didn't die so that everyone could tack on some of what he said. You can't tack on some of what Jesus said and be right with the Father. He came to divide, and he forces a choice. The crowd will always quarrel, usually with enthusiastic condescension, if you mention Jesus, right? If you bring up Jesus, really, you get an eye roll, you get all of it, right? The last two verses of our text confirm this. See how the fellow chief priest responded to Nicodemus. He's one of them, by the way. He says, you are from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So then they left. There's no attempt to, to hide their contempt. They dismiss Nicodemus sarcastically and they leave. So what are our takeaways? Intellectually, what have you decided? What have you decided? Did Jesus come to provide an add-on to your life? or to replace it. I said it earlier, preachers can sometimes be a lot like the chief priests of the... They can masterfully teach something from Scripture passionately and authoritatively... authoritatively... and yet be completely wrong. You know, we're, we're prone to equate enthusiasm and passion with correct. Not necessarily. Any rhetorical or theological concession to cultural pressures that distort the truth that Jesus claimed and stated have to be ignored, period. They just have to be. You're going to find yourself in a quagmire of your own making if you're trying to make all of that work. It doesn't work. Jesus just said, it ain't all going to work. You have to pick. You got to choose. You do have to choose. Heart. What did Jesus really do and say? Ask yourself the same question Nicodemus asked. Judge Jesus by what he said and what he did. Not by what other people have said and did. I notice Michael's not here this morning, but he and I have had some pretty good discussions that, you know, this is the whole bit about being Berean. People will say anything. Sometimes they're religious people. You cannot just because they're standing behind here, me included, you cannot just say, well, he said it, there it is. You know, he studied it, he must know. Maybe. Maybe. Be sure that what people claim Jesus said actually is what he said. 
You know, Nicodemus wasn't sure yet, but John, we're going to find, he's coming back. He's coming back later on in John. John, He's going to bring extremely expensive spices, not something that you would do if you didn't actually buy in. I think by the end of it, that Nicodemus could be counted among us. Can you? Have you decided? Hands. Our time is short. Prayerfully get busy. Mark 11, I mean, pardon me, Mark 13, 11 reminds us that the Holy Spirit guides our speech in our hour of need. And we will see later in John chapter 14, Jesus also tells us that when he sends the comforter, whom the Father will, he, it, the Father is actually going to send the comforter, he will not just abide in us forever, but he will teach us, and here's the line, bring to remembrance all things that Jesus taught. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is going to tell us, a little later on, chapter 14, that the comforter, the Holy Spirit, will bring everything that Jesus taught to your remembrance. Now, i got a question for you. You have to know something to remember it, right? I mean, it's sort of like a basic, you know, premise, right? If you're going to remember something, the, the suggestion would be, well, you heard it at least once, you knew it, and to know anything, how are you going to know anything? In our case, you read the Gospels. I know everyone, but pretty much every time I'm up here, I'm on on you about, you know, you got to read your Bible. You got to read your Bible. Well, if all of that is intimidating, start with the Gospels. Park yourself there for a while, and then the Holy Spirit will be able to bring something to your remembrance when you need it. If you're not sure exactly how to get busy, I want to share with you, none of us are. Not John, not me, none of us. That's why the encouragement is to prayerfully get busy. Do I or any of us ask or behave perfectly? <laughs> I wish, heck no. Joyfully? Absolutely. I have not experienced more joy in my life than recently when I started serving here, and recently is now <laughs> over seven years. But I'm forced when I wear a shirt that has this on it, even when I'm not feeling it, to realize that I'm representing this church and I'm representing the Lord. You don't have to trust me, by the way. I suggest that you don't trust me. Not generally, but, you know, in this particular case, absolutely. What I would say to you is, is if joy is a choice, and it begins, in, as far as I can tell, by asking the Holy Spirit for help. Ask Him. He's, he's in you if you've surrendered your life to Christ to guide you, to help you be gracious towards folks that don't believe what you believe. I wish I had been more gracious towards my dad when those days went on. It was, <laughs> it was almost 20 years before he and I were really talking with one another again. I mean, I don't want that for you. It was because at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of graciousness going on in Roy. There just wasn't. What do you do when you feel threatened? 
Do you choose joy or do you, are you more like a chief priest? Do you use and bring out the hostilities? Which one do you think is more winsome? Which one do you think is going to be more effective if this week you attempt to ask somebody to come to church with you next Sunday? You know, chances are some of them are going to think you're an idiot. Are you okay with that? I am. You think me, whatever you want. You know, that's what Jesus really, really was doing and it was what really annoyed the chief priests is that he wasn't bowing to them. And that's my prayer for you. That you'll respond to whether it's hostility, whether it's condescension, whether it's worse, like Jesus did. That's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for you. Not perfectly. Look, Jesus was the perfectly. Okay? We're not going to get there until we actually are with him in glory. But Hosanna, save us first. That's where it starts. And if you surrender your life to Christ, I promise you it will be noticeable. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Well, Father, this was frankly a hard word to kind of get ready to, 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 to give because I wanted to make sure that I didn't compromise at all, but I don't want any of it to be an attention to how I said it or the words that I chose. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would make any of those corrections on the hearts of the folks that are here. And if anyone, anyone here is wrestling with that surrender, you know, if they haven't made that choice and and they, they absolutely can notice in themselves that they're different than they used to be from that moment. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would you, by your spirit, you would, you would encourage them to surrender their life to you and get on with living for your glory. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.